0: Here's Anne Graham Lotz with today's introduction to her message, Keep Watching With Hope.
1: Jesus is coming and it's right around the bend. And our Heavenly Father is coming. Jesus is coming and He's going to bring gifts with Him.
0: And that's just the introduction for a message of hope for God's people from Joel chapter 2 from our Bible teacher on today's Living in the Light. Thanks for joining us. You won't be disappointed in what God has for you from his word. Here's Ann. Do
1: you ever have a hard time waking up in the morning? You know, I am a sleepyhead. And so my routine at home, I finally figured this out after years of the Lord convicting me, wake up and get up, you know, and it was just so hard for me. I used to set my alarm. Now I'm in the habit I don't have to um, use my alarm but I get up, I have to do my stretches and my floor exercises. I walk two and a half miles, and then I go to the coffee shop and get a triple shot of espresso. And then I come back, and that's when I have my time with the Lord. I have to wake myself up because it's hard. I just My tendency is to just crawl back in bed, roll over just a few more minutes of sleep, you know. And I think it can be as hard to wake up spiritually as it is hard for me to wake up physically. And you hear some of the things that have been shared. And have you also wanted to pull the covers over your head and crawl back in bed and say, you know, I'm not buying into this. I think it's serious, but it's not what they're saying. I don't believe that we're living at the end. I think we're in a cycle. I think this is a bump in human history, just a bump in our nation's history. And you know, things will settle down and stop pretending. Wake up, keep watching. We are living at a very critical time in human history, and I believe we're living at the end. But there's hope. And, you know, if you rolled over, if I rolled over and went back to sleep, you know, and I could sleep on and on. And think of all the things I would miss and the places I could go and the people I would see and things that God has me to do. And if you roll over and go back to sleep spiritually, God forbid that you would leave the cover, turn off the online video, and... And you would just roll over and go back to the same old, same old. You're going to miss blessing God has. for, and You're going to miss opportunities. You're going to miss the hour that God has designated for you to share the gospel or you to make a difference or you to bear fruit in just the time that's left. So don't roll over and go back to sleep. And one reason is because we have a sense of expectancy. There is hope. And if I can just share this personal story to try to illustrate the hope that we have at this point in the book of Joel and at this point in human history when I was a little girl I know Gigi will remember when uh daddy would come home mother always sort of ignored his goings but his coming she made a big deal of and so in those days he came pretty much by train it wasn't so much the airport in Asheville it was the train in Black Mountain and so when daddy was due home my grandmother would put us in the car, and she would race us down to Old Fort, and would go down to Old Fort, which is at the bottom of the foothills, and we would wait, and then we would see the train coming. And the train would go through the Old Fort station, so the lights would flash and the arm would come down, and, we'd sit and we would see the train that Daddy was on going through the station. So my grandmother would race back up the mountain from Old Fort, would come to Black Mountain, would come out, and would, would stand at the little... Black Mountain train station, which is now, I think, a gift shop, but we would stand there. The train still comes through once in a while, and, and we would stand there, and we would look down the tracks, and the tracks go straight, but then at the end of the tracks, they, they curve, so you can't see around that curve, that bend, but we would watch, and we would wait, and we knew the train was coming because we saw it go through Old Fort. It just seems sometimes it just took so long, but we knew Daddy was coming. And so we would stand there, and we're looking and looking and looking, and then we would see the lights flash, and then the arm would come down to block traffic from going across the road, and we'd hear a big whistle, and then around the bend comes a big headlight, and the train rolled into the station, and Daddy had come home. He always brought gifts with him. (laughs) And they could be things that he picked up at the airport or just a little trinket, but we were just excited to have Daddy home and go through his luggage and find out what he had brought us. And our Daddy's coming. And we can look down the bend and it just seems like it's taken 2,000 years and it's so long. But I'm here to tell you, I've seen the lights flashing, the arm is coming down, the train. Jesus is coming and it's right around the bend. And our Heavenly Father is coming. Jesus is coming and he's going to bring gifts with him. And it's going to be a wonderful time of celebration and it is soon. Jesus is coming. So open your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verse 18. It's a very encouraging lesson from the book of Joel. And I think specifically, I think this message is specifically for the nation of Israel and also for God's people, whether they're Jews in Israel or the ones around the world, or it's just God's people, followers of Jesus, those who have been to the cross and received him by faith. This is a message for us, okay, personally. And the message basically is that... When we repent of our sin, when we return to God and we rend our hearts and we come back to the cross and we fall at the foot of the cross and we plead for God's mercy, have mercy on us, then he promises he will restore us, he will revive us, he will return for us, and one day he's going to reside with us. So precious promise also for the nation of Israel. Think about it. If they would return to God and rend their hearts, and come to the cross and plead God's mercy, he would restore them, revive them, return for them. And one day, of course, he will reside in their midst. So, wonderful word of encouragement. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord will be jealous for his land, and when we pressure Israel to give up her land, and then we have an environmental disaster, whether it's here in Europe, whoever is responsible, it's because God is jealous for his land. And he will take pity on his people. He will have compassion on those of us who return to him and rend our hearts. He will restore us with compassion and pity. And if I can use an example... You know, when your children are small, just say if your son is playing ball in the yard and he hits the ball, and instead of going where he was sending it, it came right through your living room window. And you hear the glass crashing, and, you know, he's made a mess, and you run out, and there's your son, and he's defiant. And you're saying, what did you do? I didn't do anything. That's not my fault. That wasn't me. And there's the bat, and and you know it was him. And so if my son did that, judgment would fall, you know? (laughs) But if... The ball comes through the window, and the glass is all over, and he's made a mess, and you run out, and and you see your son standing there, and he looks at you, and he bursts into tears, and he runs to you, and he puts his arms around and says, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to. I hit the ball, and it didn't go where I was sending it, and I've made a mess, and I'm so sorry. How is your response? You put your arm around him, right? And you say, it's okay. We'll fix it. I can make it better. It's okay. I know you didn't mean to, and I know it was a mistake, and... When we sin, and instead of defying God and saying, I didn't do that, it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault, it's my headache, it's my whatever is the issue. And you blame it on somebody else and you are defiant, and, you know, God's going to get tough with you. But if you run to your Heavenly Father and say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't want to sin intentionally like that, and I'm so sorry and I confess my sin. And God puts his arms of love around you and he responds with pity and compassion like a mother would who's caught her child in something but the child responds in, in repentance so God restores us compassionately and isn't that what Psalm 23 says the Lord is my shepherd I, I shall not want and he leads us beside the still waters he restores my soul and he restores us on the inside and all the brokenness and the turmoil that's been going on inside and sense of agitation and fear and he restores us on the inside with compassion and he restores us completely and this is for us but also i think for the nation of israel after a time of war second chronicles seven fourteen says if my people and that can be the jews in israel it can be you and me who are called by my name will humble ourselves pray seek his face turn from our wicked ways then God will hear and forgive and heal our land. Look at the healing. Look at the restoration. In verse in verse 19, the Lord will reply. This is his reply to that prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, heal our land. Forgive us. This is his reply. So if you remember from chapter 1, the harbingers, when agriculturally they were destroyed. He says, the Lord replies, I'm going to restore now. I'm going to restore you agriculturally. I'll send you grain and new wine and oil enough to satisfy you fully. I'm going to restore you nationally. In verse 20, I'm going to drive the northern army far from you, push it into a parched, barren land. That's the locust plague, but that's also the northern army. And one day there will be a northern army on the land of Israel, I'm assuming from Ezekiel 38. And if Iran and Russia and Turkey and Syria, they align against Israel and they come down. God's going to push them back. He will restore them nationally. Verse 21, restore you emotionally. Do you remember in chapter 1 and 2 where the, their joy had withered away and they had um, mourned, they were in despair, the people wept? Now, he says, don't be afraid, be glad and Rejoice. He repeats that in verse 22, be not afraid. Verse 23, be glad, rejoice. And he restores the joy of their salvation and gives them back the inside blessing that they've been missing. And then this is a precious promise for all of us. In verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And the locust ate, I don't know how many years they ate when Joel was giving this, but it represents years of lost opportunity, years of wasted living, years of living for yourself or for the approval of other people or whatever your ambition and your goal and your priorities have been. And then you come to faith, you return to God, you repent of your sin, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I'm 40 years old and I've been living for myself for 40 years or I'm 60 years old or whatever your age is. And you think, and it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? And it's so distressful to look back and see that so many opportunities you've missed, so many things you've not done, so many, you know, things you could have done. But the locusts have eaten the years. The sin has just eaten your life. And so you've got all of this waste. And God is promising that when we return to him and rend our hearts, And we come back to the cross. He will restore. And it doesn't mean, you know, you can't go back and relive your 40 years. But he can take your life from, that was then, this is now, from this point forward. He can make up to you what you have lost. Not in the same way. But he can cram as much spiritual fruit and as much blessing as he possibly can in the time you have left. He will make it up to you. One example, if I can use this couple that I met on the road when I was doing my book tour and they had an interesting testimony and the husband had been in ministry when he was caught for some things that he shouldn't have done and went to prison actually for it and while he was in prison his wife uh, left him and married his best friend that he had asked to take care of her while he was incarcerated and so he was stripped of his wife whom he loved and all of his things, his possessions. When he was finally released from prison, he had nothing. He was homeless, penniless, nothing. But while he was in prison, he had repented. He had rended his heart. He had returned to the Lord God. He had flung himself at the foot of the cross. So he came out and one thing led to another, but God gave him a, another woman, a beautiful woman who also had a past, including five abortions because of the life she had lived. And she had also Returned to God and rended her heart and flung herself at the foot of the cross and God brought them together in a beautiful relationship and put them back in ministry back ministering to people back using the brokenness in their lives to minister to other broken people with compassion and it was a beautiful thing to observe and to see and I knew I was looking at somebody God was restoring to them the years the locusts had eaten so I don't know what you think you've lost and the opportunities, and you can weep if you need to, you know. But don't let that keep you from surrendering your life to God now and giving Him your life and saying, God, not for anything I've done or not for who I am, but you're a God of restoration. And so I pray, dear God, restore to me the years the locusts have eaten. And God will, okay, just wrap your heart around it, claim it. And he will do that for you. Just maybe not all at once, but just unfold it for you so that when you step into his presence and you see him face to face, you have something to show for the life you've lived down here. It hasn't all been wasted. You have something to lay at his feet. So he will restore you. The people of God would return to him, rend their hearts, come back to the cross, plead his mercy. He will restore you. And he also will revive you. In verse 28 and 29. Afterward I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And the pattern is that when God pours out his spirit on you. Then he fills your heart and it comes out in your lips. And if the Holy Spirit is living within you, you can't be silent. When John and Peter went imprisoned, you remember they were flogged right after Pentecost? And they were told not to speak of Jesus anymore. And they said, We can't help but speak of what we know and have heard. You know, you just can't help it. It bubbles up and it comes out. But Zechariah, this is a prophecy, I think, for Israel in the days to come that God will pour out his Spirit on them. But because in Zechariah 12. God says, God will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication and Israel will look on the one whom she has pierced and she will mourn as for an only begotten son. And I believe that's going to take place at the rapture. Joel doesn't really touch on the rapture, but it says afterward in verse 28. And I just think after God has removed the church, then he's going to pour out his spirit on Israel and on the Jews. And Romans 11:26, Paul says, all of Israel will be saved. And it doesn't mean every single Jew living on the planet, but it means the majority of Jews to the point that Israel becomes the center for the gospel, they become the sending nation. They become the nation God originally intended them to be. So he will pour out his spirit on all flesh, but he also, this is a promise according to Peter that's for you and me. Because at Pentecost, remember, Peter pulled this promise out from Joel and applied it to Pentecost. Because Jesus had promised, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. So Jesus is with his disciples and he says, you know the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is in me and you're with me. But one day the Holy Spirit will come, I'll ask the Father to give him to you and he will come to live in you. And that was a radical new concept. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit always has been. He's, he is the Spirit of the living God. He is God. And you find him in Genesis chapter 1, after God created everything, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. That's the Spirit of the living God. That's the Holy Spirit hovering over planet Earth, preparing it to receive God's Word so that day by day the planet is transformed. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit not only did things like that, but he would come upon a person to equip that person for whatever the service was that God had assigned them. So it could be somebody working with gold in the temple, or somebody working with silver, or building something, or, you know, making the garments. And the Holy Spirit would come upon them to gift them to do that work, and then the Holy Spirit would be removed. And the Holy Spirit could come upon a person like Saul of Kish, the first king of Israel, and equip Saul to be the leader of God's people. And when Saul sinned, God removed his Holy Spirit. So when David came as the second king of Israel and he was anointed and the Holy Spirit came upon him to equip him to be the king of Israel. When David sinned with Bathsheba, what did he say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he knew the Holy Spirit could be given to you for a time and then removed from you. So before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was certainly alive and well because he is God, he is eternal. But he would come upon someone for a time and then be removed. After Pentecost you know, I'll I'll just describe Pentecost. The disciples had been in an upper room for 10 days, praying, fasting after Jesus had ascended. And you know, one of the things they were praying for is Jesus, keep your promise. Ask God, the father to send us the Holy spirit. Don't leave us like orphans. 10 days later, I'm assuming they gathered on the temple courtyard somewhere outside the temple because of the size of the crowd that gathers and they're praying and praising God and suddenly Peter looks at John, he's got a little flame of fire on his head. And John looks at Andrew, he's got a little flame of fire on his head. And Andrew looks at Matthew, he's got a little... And they were overwhelmed with the intense sense of the presence of Jesus in their midst. And they opened their mouths and just a symphony of praise. And all of Jerusalem, all the pilgrims who had gathered from all over the world for the Feast of Pentecost, they all heard the gospel preached in their own language. And the disciples knew... The Holy Spirit had come no longer to be with us, but to live in us when we receive Christ by faith. Now, people in Jerusalem gathered around and they said, oh my goodness, these men are drunk this early in the morning. And Peter, in my paraphrase, you're crazy. We don't drink this early in the morning. What you have witnessed is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Joel chapter 2, that God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. The Holy Spirit has come and he preached the gospel so clearly. 3,000 people were converted. So the Holy Spirit is available for you and me to come live inside of us. So can I ask you, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? And let me make it very clear. The Holy Spirit is Jesus in you. So when I was a little girl... And I was in my bedroom in my mother's house across the valley. And I told God I was sorry for my sin and asked him to forgive me and come into my heart. He came into me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't understand that at the time. I just invited Jesus to come live in me. And I knew just within an hour, I, I felt as a little girl, the burden lift and I felt lighter. I remember walking down the steps to tell my mother and feeling that sense of the, the Spirit's presence in my life. I couldn't have explained it. But you don't have to understand it all. No, Who would? But when you confess your sin and you tell God you're sorry and you come to the cross and claim Jesus as God's sacrifice for your sin and you ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and you invite him to come into your life and you surrender to him as Lord, he comes in, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus inside of you. Jesus without, everything Jesus is, without his man's physical body. So when did you invite him in? Don't assume because you're a member of a church where you come to the Cove or you read your Bible or you've signed some card that the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have to make an individual, intentional transaction with God where you come to the cross by faith and you confess your sin, tell God you're sorry Ask him to forgive you, cleanse you with the blood of Jesus and put all of your faith in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It's not Jesus plus your church attendance. It's not Jesus plus your membership or plus the traditions or plus the rituals. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And you put your trust in him. And when you do, he cleanses you of sin and he forgives you. He gives you eternal life, which is a personal relationship with his father that never ends. It's not even interrupted by death. It just goes from faith to sight. And he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. Never to leave you. Never to forsake you. Listen to me. I don't care what you do. You can go out, God forbid, kill ten people, commit all sorts of sin. If the Holy Spirit truly is within you, you're going to be miserable if you have a lifestyle like that. But, But he will never leave you. He doesn't come and go as he did in the Old Testament. Once you receive him by faith, he lives in you forever. And so when we think of going through judgment, even if it's the first three of the ten plagues, (laughs) even if it's sort of an initiation the world is going to experience fully, but it's going to be hard and tough, Jesus has not left you like an orphan. He has come to you. He lives inside of you. You have God living inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that you're validated. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of yourself in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So when God looks at you in a spiritual sense, he sees the seal Of his Holy Spirit in your life. And he knows you belong to him. You're his child. You're authentic. You're validated. And along with that seal and that validation comes an eternal inheritance. So all the blessings upon blessings that are stored up for you. Including heaven when you die. That is your inheritance. It's your birthright. Your rebirthright. So the Holy Spirit is your guarantee. You have him now. But he's a guarantee of so much more to come. And Romans 8 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And if we're God's children, we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All that is His, He shares with us. And one day we're going to reign with Him. And the Holy Spirit lives in us now. And I think this is like boot camp. It's like training ground. He's preparing us for a life yet to come. And we'll serve Him and live with Him and glorify Him forever and ever and ever.
0: Now here's Anne with this final word. Praise
1: God. He has given us the Holy Spirit to revive us and to restore us. When you received Jesus Christ by faith, when you were saved, when you were born again, God placed His Holy Spirit within you. You have all of the Holy Spirit you will ever have. Just make sure He has all of you.
0: Plan to join us every week on Living in the Light as Ann Graham-Lotz brings her insights and teaching from God's Word. And don't forget to take advantage of the many free resources at annegrahamlotz.org, including Ann's daily blog that makes a perfect devotional reading. Thank you for being with us today.